welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Big week in immigration with interesting wins for non-citizens, not least of which out of my old Southern District of Florida, where Judge Bloom, confirmed unanimously by the Senate in 2014, permanently enjoined the administration of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis from enforcing parts of his anti-sanctuary city law, in part because the Florida legislators who wrote the law permitted, quote, anti-immigrant hate groups that overtly promote xenophobic, nationalist, racist ideologies to be intimately involved in the bill's legislative process, end quote. Congratulations, counsel. Also, Attorney General Garland has appointed the once-former BIA chairman, David Neal, to be director of EOIR. The Immigration Review Podcast welcomes you, Director Neal. Lots of motions to reopen this week. Gonna go a bit quickly to get through them all timely. Enjoy. First off is Ganem v. Attorney General of the U.S., published by the Third Circuit on September 22, 2021. Starting off with a very interesting one about asylum and Convention Against Torture Protection from Yemen. Mr. Ganem is my age, but he was born in Yemen, a country currently in the midst of a civil war and an external war with its neighbors, including Saudi Arabia. He was admitted to the United States as a lawful permanent resident in 2003 and he returned to Yemen to marry in 2009. And he stayed there, opening a convenience store in the capital of Sana'a. Not the best timing, though. The Arab Spring hit shortly thereafter, and Mr. Genem participated in protests against then-ruler Ali Abdullah Saleh, the longtime dictator who was murdered by ethnic Houthi rebels a couple of years ago after he aligned himself with those same Houthis to try to reclaim power. Before all that, though, Mr. Ghanem opposed President Saleh, and so he opposed his, for at least a time, Houthi allies. He made his feelings known to his family, but it turns out his sister and brother-in-law had aligned themselves with the Houthis without Mr. Ghanem knowing. 
His brother-in-law threatened him and demanded that he, too, align himself with the Houthis. Mr. Genom refused. The Houthis ostensibly took control of Sana'a and the government around this time, and they began threatening, following, and making demands of Mr. Genom. They beat him when he refused to divorce his non-Houthi wife. Unclear whether Mr. Genom himself is Shia or has possible Houthi ethnicity, but no matter. Quote, Mr. Genom was kidnapped and tortured before being convicted and sentenced to 10 years imprisonment for political opposition to the Houthi regime, end quote. For two weeks, he suffered horrible, horrible treatment. He spent another two weeks afterwards in an intensive care unit of a hospital after his release from the Houthis, all in the middle of a war, mind you. Mr. Genom nevertheless fought back and he tried to get justice against his attackers, but to no avail. That's what led to his eventual 10-year sentence in absentia. He was sentenced to the 10 years by a Houthi court after he fled all over Yemen and then fled Yemen altogether, all while remaining in contact with the official Yemeni government in exile and making his anti-Houthi opinion known. He is to be captured on the spot if he's returned to Yemen. He tried to enter the U.S. as an LPR in 2017, but he was detained and placed in removal proceedings. See, even though he held lawful permanent resident status, there's a rebuttable presumption that LPRs abandon that status if they remain outside the United States for more than one year. The seven years here outside the U.S. would be very difficult for Mr. Gunham to overcome. And he could not, at least not pro se and in detention, as he was. And so in removal proceedings, he applied for asylum and related relief, which, kind of astonishingly, at least based on what I just relayed from the Third Circuit, the IJ and the BIA denied. It appears that he got pro bono counsel on appeal, mounted the defense that should have been mounted all along, and succeeded. The Third Circuit first held that the IJ and the BIA were wrong to conclude that Mr. Genom wasn't persecuted on account of his anti-Houthi political opinion. In the Third Circuit, an applicant, quote, need only provide some evidence of that motive, direct or circumstantial, end quote. And Mr. Genom certainly did that. And I mean, really, the evidence is, quote, overwhelming, end quote, on this issue. And the Third can't really understand how the IJ and BIA found otherwise. The Houthis, at a minimum, presumed that Mr. Genom had an affiliation with the lawfully elected Yemeni government that was forced into exile by the Houthis, and whether true or not, that's a sufficient political opinion nexus. Quote, the BIA may not simply overlook evidence in the record that supports the applicant's case. End quote. In fact, the evidence is so, quote, abundant, end quote, on the issue that the Third Circuit didn't remand for further analysis, but instead held that the persecution suffered and feared was on account of a protected ground. That's a big deal. Don't mess with Yemen. General good advice in many contexts. Regarding Convention Against Torture Protection, the Third Circuit vacated that denial too. Although the Third Circuit didn't cite the case, it seems pretty clear that the IJ and BIA denied cat protection based on matter of JFF, which is a pretty common way to deny cat protection, but the Third Circuit was having none of this, quote, analysis by hypothetical, end quote. Applying matter of JFF's analysis by hypothetical, quote, threatens to collapse the factual and legal inquiries and to raise the bar for establishing a likelihood of torture above that required by our case law, end quote. So it looks like the court is ordering cat protection to be granted as well. Quite the case for many uses, especially if you have a case from Yemen.
Congratulations, Ian H. Gershengorn, William R. Weaver, and Samuel C. Kaplan for petitioners. Two more important quotes to remember. In a footnote, the Third Circuit made pretty clear that to the extent the IJ may have wanted additional corroborating evidence of Mr. Genham's claims, it was unreasonable to expect it due to the, quote, ongoing war in Yemen, his current detention, and his lack of resources to pay, end quote. All circumstances present in many asylum cases. And remember this quote from mixed motive cases, quote, Conflict of a personal nature does not necessarily reduce other motivations, and this is especially true in sectarian and ethnic conflicts where political affiliation often overlaps with tribal or personal identity. End quote. And that is Genem, the Attorney General of the U.S. Sticking with the Middle East and North Africa, we have Abu Shagi v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on September 24, 2021. This case is about motions to reopen and voluntary departure. Mr. Abu Shagif is from Libya and was admitted to the U.S. as a student in the mid-2000s. But it appears he didn't fully go to class, and so DHS sought his removal in September 2010. Shortly thereafter, a civil war erupted in Libya due in part to the Arab Spring, and, with President Gaddafi still in charge, Mr. Abu Shagif applied for asylum due to his anti-Gaddafi political opinions and his brother being jailed by the Gaddafi forces. But then, of course, Gaddafi was killed, and his regime collapsed. Mr. Abu Shagif withdrew his application for asylum and agreed to pre-conclusion voluntary departure, meaning that he avoided a removal order if he left. But he did not leave for the chaos in Libya, as he promised he would do in immigration court, and in January 2019, he filed a motion to reopen with the immigration court. In his motion, he claimed that conditions had gotten even worse in Libya, that his father had been kidnapped and tortured by militias in Libya, that he himself had converted to Christianity in the interim, and that he had come out as bisexual. Plus, he claimed he had once served in the Gaddafi regime's National Guard. All of this, he asserted, put him at risk of torture and death in Libya, now run by various militias, and so he asked the IJ to reopen proceedings. The IJ and the BIA denied the motion for a couple of reasons, including due to perceived inconsistencies between what Mr. Abu Shagif said in 2011 and what he was now saying in his motion to reopen. The Fifth Circuit largely affirmed the BIA, but ultimately remanded proceedings in a limited way. In the Fifth Circuit, one of the things an applicant filing a motion to reopen based on changed country conditions to apply for asylum and related relief must show is a prima facie case to asylum or cat protection. Here, the Fifth Circuit read the BIA's decision as holding only that Mr. Abu Shagif had failed to meet that burden, based on the inconsistencies and a failure to corroborate his claims in his motion. Mr. Abu Shagif argued that the IG and the BIA erred there because it should have believed him because his story was, quote, inherently believable, end quote, which on a motion to reopen, quote, requires that the board accept all facts alleged in a motion to reopen as true unless they are inherently unbelievable, end quote. That's quite the standard, and six circuits apparently apply it, the 1st, 3rd, 6th, 7th, 9th, and D.C. Circuit. Noted but the Fifth Circuit does not and will not. 
It declined to do so relying in part on the Supreme Court's recent decision in Dye v. Garland, which shot down, quote, judge-made procedural requirements, end quote, on credibility. So watch out, everyone. Dye is in a different context, but it's something to consider briefing in future cases and other circuits, because it is, after all, the Supreme Court. And so the Fifth Circuit upheld the BIA's reliance on inconsistencies between Mr. Abu Shagif's various applications to find that he had not established a prima facie case to asylum or withholding of removal sufficient to warrant reopening. First, Mr. Abu Shagif didn't mention his military service in his asylum application in 2011 that he ultimately withdrew, despite that form asking about it. But now he was of course relying on that service to request a motion to reopen to apply for asylum relief. Second, apparently, some of the documents were inconsistent between Mr. Abu Shagif's various applications regarding the reason for an injury that his father suffered. Third, he didn't mention a kidnapping of his father in 2011, despite it being very relevant to his asylum application back then. Finally, Mr. Abu Shagif didn't sufficiently corroborate that he was now a Christian or bisexual. His affidavit alone, even on a motion to reopen, doesn't cut it in the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit held that the BIA was not required to accept Mr. Abu Shagif's explanations for these perceived inconsistencies, and so it upheld the agency. But not on cat protection. And that is because, quote, the BIA must address cat claims where they are raised, end quote. It did not do so here, and so remand is required. And so that's what the Fifth Circuit did. And that is Abu Shagif v. Garland. Next is Matter of Arambula Bravo, published by the BIA. This case is about notices to appear and jurisdiction. It's the 302nd such decision on the subject but this one comes from the BIA, post-Niz Chavez. It's also about parole. As pertinent to the issues here, Ms. Arambola Bravo was placed in removal proceedings, but her NTA did not include the time and place of her first removal hearing, as NTAs must, under INA Section 239A. She received a notice of hearing with the information six days later. It appears that this case was briefed after the Supreme Court's decision in Pereira, but before the Supreme Court's decision in Niz Chavez. Ms. Arambula Bravo argued that under Pereira, the immigration judge never had jurisdiction over her removal proceedings because of the NTA's deficiencies. The BIA rejected this exact argument in its 2018 decision matter of Bermuda's Coda, and every circuit that I know of has agreed that NTA deficiencies don't implicate jurisdictional concerns. So really, the first question here is, did the Nish Chavez decision change all that? The BIA said no. It noted that Nish Chavez, like Pereira, is a non-LPR cancellation of removal case, and viewed Nish Chavez, like it viewed Pereira, as only addressing whether a deficient NTA will trigger the stop-time rule for non-LPR cancellation of removal. Reminder, it will not. Nor will a subsequent notice of hearing. Anyway, on jurisdiction, the BIA cited the, quote, overwhelming chorus, end quote, of circuits that agree that deficient NTAs do not implicate jurisdictional concerns. Plus Attorney General Garland's pesky footnote that I mentioned on episode 60 in matter of LEA III. Having dismissed the jurisdictional arguments, the BIA affirmed the order of removal. 
See, Miss Arambula Bravo had actually been paroled into the United States, it appears, for criminal prosecution. And 8 CFR Section 212.5E2I establishes that being served with a, quote, charging document, end quote, constitutes, quote, written notice of termination of parole, end quote. Ms. Arambula Bravo argued that her deficient NTA was not a charging document under the regulations, meaning that her parole was never terminated, meaning that she's not removable. But the BIA rejected the argument, mostly because 8 CFR section 1003.13 defines, quote, charging document, end quote, to include other documents besides just NTAs. Now, the BIA recognized that the regulation does list a finite amount of charging documents that will terminate parole. And the regulations certainly don't include a deficient NTA as one of those charging documents. But the BIA reasoned that because the regulation isn't limited only to NTAs, as is, say, the stop-time rule for non-LPR cancellation of removal addressed in Nishavas and Pereira, the NTA definition at INA Section 239A isn't implicated like it was implicated in Pereira and Nishavas, and so deficient NTAs will count to terminate parole. The BIA went on to explain a bunch more reasons for its interpretation of the regulations, which, as longtime listeners know, will one day be subject to the less deferential R. Kaiser deference in the various circuit courts of appeals. Anyway, this meant that upon termination of parole, Miss Arambula Bravo reverted back to a non-citizen present without being admitted or paroled, and that made her removable. The BIA also affirmed denial of non-LPR cancellation of removal. Even though the stop-time rule wasn't triggered by the deficient NTA, as we all know, Ms. Arambula Bravo's conviction for unlawfully transporting non-citizens under INA Section 274A1AII is an aggravated felony as defined under INA Section 101A43N, an offense relating to alien smuggling. So said the Ninth Circuit in the past where these proceedings originate, and so said the BIA here. So Ms. Arambula Bravo is removable but you know I must keep going. To me, this case takes pains to limit its non-parole part of the holding to whether deficient NTAs implicate jurisdictional concerns, an issue that, quite frankly, the federal circuits have kind of already answered in the negative. But here, the BIA also expressly cited to its 2020 decision in matter of Rosales-Vargas and Rosales-Rosales, where it held that NTA deficiencies do implicate claims processing rule violations that could lead to dismissal of removal proceedings. The most helpful decision on that issue comes from the Seventh Circuit in De La Rosa v. Garland, discussed on episode 61 of the podcast. The BIA punted on conducting a claims processing rule violation analysis in a footnote because the issue wasn't timely raised before the IJ below. So raise it. Also, I believe that the whole issue of whether parole from detention constitutes a parole sufficient to permit Cubans to adjust status under the Cuban Adjustment Act is currently on appeal to the BIA from Judge Cole's big decision in Miami. This BIA decision discusses parole extensively. I'd look at it hard if I was litigating a Cuban Adjustment Act parole appeal to the BIA to see if the BIA is laying the groundwork for a forthcoming decision. Finally, note the use of the word non-citizen rather than alien, throughout, a product of the Biden administration's policies instructing DHS and EOIR to stop using the term alien unless directly quoting a statute or regulation. Not nothing. 
And that is Matter of Arambula. Bravo. Sticking with NTAs, we have Tino v. Garland, published by the 8th Circuit on September 20th, 2021. This is a very short case about jurisdiction post Chavez and asylum. Sound familiar? Miss Tino and her two minor children fled for the United States from Guatemala in fear of gangs. Miss Tino apparently argued that the IJ and the BIA lacked jurisdiction over her removal proceedings because the notice to appear lacked the date, time, and location of her first hearing. But that jurisdiction-based argument has pretty much been rejected by all the circuits, and the BIA, just now. Some circuits have held that NTA deficiencies constitute mandatory claims processing rule violations, but I'm not sure if the Eighth Circuit has made such a ruling. Anyway, the court reiterated its prior jurisdiction holding, agreeing in a footnote with the Fifth Circuit's recent decision in Maniar v. Garland, discussed on episode 56 of the podcast, which reaffirmed post-Niz Chavez that NTA deficiencies do not implicate jurisdictional concerns. But again... Claims processing rule violations are separate and may still lead to dismissal of proceedings, and this case does not address the claims processing rule argument at all. Turning then to asylum, the Eighth Circuit affirmed the BIA's finding that the particular social group of, quote, family unaffiliated with any gangs who refuse to provide any support to transnational criminal gangs in Guatemala, end quote, is not cognizable because it is neither socially distinct nor is it particular. The Eighth Circuit also affirmed the BIA's finding that, even if cognizable, the harm Miss Tino feared was not on account of her alternative particular social groups of nuclear family or the group, quote, indigenous tribal group of Quiche, end quote, due to Miss Tino's, quote, repeated testimony that the aggressors targeted her to extort money, end quote. Honestly, the Eighth Circuit provides no real analysis other than citing to prior Eighth Circuit case law, so I have no more to relay. Very short case. I imagine they published it for the Niz Chavez footnote. And that is Tino V. Garland. Moving on, we have Berdia V. Garland, published by the Tenth Circuit on September 21st, 2021. Do you remember the 21st night of September? Welcome back to the podcast, Tenth Circuit. This case is a nice one for non-citizens, and it involves, you guessed it, motions to reopen. Mr. Berdiev is from Tajikistan and came to the United States as a student in 2007, but he overstayed his visa. Once in removal proceedings, however, he sought to adjust a lawful permanent resident status based on his marriage to a U.S. citizen, something he could do because he initially entered the U.S. after inspection and admission, in this case, as a student. But as we all know, IJs incredibly don't have authority to approve I-130 petitions, and after seven continuances, USCIS eventually denied the I-130 petition filed for Mr. Berdiev's benefit by his U.S. citizen wife, finding that she had failed to establish the bona fides of the marriage. The IJ granted Mr. Berdiev voluntary departure. Mr. Berdiev appealed, and after 27 months, the BIA dismissed the appeal and re-granted voluntary departure. But Mr. Berdiev had moved, and he never received the BIA's decision. Because Mr. Berdiev did not leave within 60 days as mandated by the BIA's grant of voluntary departure, his voluntary departure grant turned into a final order of removal. 
He was represented during the appeal and before the immigration judge, and when he learned about all of this six months after the BIA's decision, he hired a new attorney to file a motion to reopen, based on alleged ineffective assistance of counsel by his first attorneys, claiming that those first attorneys had failed to notify him of the BIA's decision and the voluntary departure requirements. And actually, his prior attorneys had mailed him the BIA's decision, but Mr. Berdiev had moved, so he never received it. Unclear whether he had definitively told his first attorneys that he had moved. Then, Mr. Berdiev divorced his first wife and married someone else, also a U.S. citizen. She filed another I-130 petition for him. All right. The BIA denied the ineffective assistance of counsel motion to reopen. It appears, and ironically, because Mr. Berdiev's second attorney failed to comply with matter of Lazada. The BIA also declined to exercise its sua sponte authority to reopen and remand proceedings on its own, an argument Mr. Berdiev likely made based on the newly filed I-130 petition, which approved, would make him prima facie eligible to adjust to lawful permanent resident status. So Mr. Berdiev filed a second motion to reopen with the assistance of a third attorney, alleging ineffective assistance of counsel of the second attorney. The BIA denied this second motion, even though by this time the second I-130 had been approved. And in denying the second motion, the BIA refused to equitably toll the regulatory deadline for such motions, stating that Mr. Berdiev had not explained why he waited three years to hire the third attorney to file the second motion. The BIA also declined to exercise its sua sponte authority to reopen proceedings, holding that Mr. Berdiev wouldn't be eligible for relief anyway, because failure to depart the U.S. when issued voluntary departure results in a 10-year bar to adjusting to LPR status. Mr. Berdiev was still within the 10-year period from when the BIA granted him voluntary departure, and he overstayed. So the BIA held that he wasn't eligible to adjust anyway. Okay. Tenth Circuit. It usually doesn't have authority to review a sua sponte motion to reopen denial, but it does where the quote, BIA bases its discretionary decision on an incorrect legal premise, end quote. And that's what the Tenth Circuit held happened here. It's not easy to get a sua sponte motion to reopen issue reviewed in a circuit court, and it's even more difficult to get them to agree with you, so take note, especially in the Tenth. The Tenth Circuit held that the BIA was wrong under BIA precedent about the voluntary departure issue. Mr. Berdiev was still potentially eligible to adjust to LPR status despite not departing the U.S. after receiving voluntary departure less than 10 years ago. News to me. The Tenth Circuit so held because under the BIA's 2007 decision in matter of Zemajuska, there's an exception to the 10-year bar to adjusting under INA Section 240B D1B if, quote, through no fault of his own, the respondent remains unaware of the grant of voluntary departure until after the period of voluntary departure has expired, end quote. If that's the case, the 10-year bar to adjusting for failure to voluntarily depart does not apply. How about that? I'm sure Ira Kurzban knew this, but I did not. Thank you, Tenth Circuit. Mr. Berdiev argued that this applied to him because he was never made aware of the BIA's voluntary departure grant until too late. Remember, the first attorney's alleged ineffective assistance and the 27-month appeal? The BIA didn't consider this whole argument, and so it applied an incorrect legal standard to deny the sua sponte motion to reopen request. 
And that's how you turn a non-reviewable issue into a reviewable one at the circuit. The Tenth Circuit did, however, affirm the BIA's denial of the regulatory motion to reopen because the motion was number-barred and time-barred, and equitable tolling wasn't warranted here. In the Tenth Circuit, and pretty much everywhere, to even potentially equitable toll the time limit to file a motion to reopen, a non-citizen must act with due diligence, and for ineffective assistance of counsel-based motions like the one here, that clock begins to tick where the non-citizen, quote, knew or should have known of prior counsel's ineffectiveness, end quote. The three years here between the BIA's decision and that final motion to reopen was too long, although the Tenth Circuit did sympathize. After all, the BIA itself took 27 months to rule on his appeal the first time, so Mr. Berdiev had good reason to expect delays in immigration. But the argument didn't win the day. At a minimum, when the second attorney became unresponsive to Mr. Berdiev, Mr. Berdiev should have suspected that something was up and acted with more diligence. So Mr. Berdiev does not have a regulatory basis to reopen his proceedings, but none of those things apply to sua sponte motions to reopen. So the case was sent back for the BIA to reevaluate exercising its discretion to reopen these proceedings. Indeed, quote, it would be illogical for the board to decline to exercise that authority on the basis that the motion was untimely and equitable tolling was not warranted, end quote. Regulatory motions to reopen and sua sponte motions are two different things. Good luck, Mr. Berdiev, and congratulations, Andrew Bramante and Hans Meyer for petitioner. And that is Berdiev v. Garland. Moving on, we have Alfred v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on September 22, 2021. This is the first of a trio of Ninth Circuit cases that I'll end the episode with and I'll give everyone a break for motions to reopen and asylum cases, for a minute. This case is about the Ninth Circuit's decision in United States v. Valdivia Flores and aggravated felonies. Put on your thinking caps. And as it turns out, Valdivia Flores is the very case with the Washington statute that I mentioned at the end of Sasse v. Attorney General two weeks ago, and that I couldn't remember the name of. Thank you, immigration gods, for this bountiful harvest. Judge England, sitting by designation, wrote the decision and then concurred with the decision, as did Judge Rawlinson and Judge Bybee. And to get all the preliminaries out of the way, the decision doesn't give a pronoun for the petitioner, so I'm going to call the individual petitioner. Petitioner is from the Republic of Palau and entered the U.S. under the Compact of Free Association between the U.S. and several island territories that I've mentioned a couple of times on the podcast which essentially allowed Petitioner to come to the U.S., work, and live here without a visa. Seven years later, Petitioner pled guilty in Washington State Court to one count of second-degree robbery and two counts of attempted robbery in the second degree. The plea agreement indicated that Petitioner committed these crimes without anyone else's assistance, and Petitioner received 15 months imprisonment. DHS initiated removal proceedings and charged Petitioner as removable as an aggravated felon. To wit, aggravated felony theft offense under INA Section 101A43G. That type of aggravated felony is essentially defined by federal common law and not by reference to another specific statute, as is, say, aggravated felony crimes of violence. 
Now, apparently, the Ninth Circuit held that this very Washington robbery conviction was an aggravated felony in the 2014 decision United States v. Alvarado Pineda. But in 2017, the Ninth Circuit issued Valdivia Flores. In that decision, the Ninth Circuit held that, quote, when considering the immigration effect of a Washington conviction for possession of a controlled substance with the intent to distribute, accomplice liability is an implicit and indivisible component of the conviction that must be considered under the categorical approach, end quote. And, because accomplice liability's mental state, or mens rea, in Washington is less and therefore broader than the accomplice liability mental state under federal law, Valdivia Flores found that there can be no categorical match to a removable offense. Put another way, even though the individual in Valdivia Flores was not prosecuted as an accomplice, also known as aiding and abetting, he could have been under Washington law because accomplice liability is not a separate crime from principal liability in Washington. Because Washington accomplice liability is easier to prove than is accomplice liability under federal law, the elements of the Washington offense are therefore broader than the federal removability provision, which requires a higher standard for accomplice liability. As I texted various individuals at the time of Valdivia Flores's issuance, what a holding. And I know I texted this because I remember specifically being at Nasbury Farms in Homestead at the time. Great cinnamon rolls, by the way, and the milkshakes are underrated. This decision and Valdivia Flores are huge holdings, because it would appear to me that maybe all crimes in Washington provide that accomplice liability is included implicitly and is indivisible from principal liability of crimes. And as Washington accomplice liability doesn't satisfy the federal definition of accomplice liability, that would seem to mean that no crime in Washington state can be a removable offense. Or at least no aggravated felony. Seems to be what the court held here. In Washington state, quote, because it is well established that aiding and abetting liability is implicit in every criminal charge, it must also be considered, end quote. And like in Valdivia Flores, irrespective of the actual aggravated felony statute at issue, quote, our inquiry ends with accomplice liability as well. The overbreath of Washington's accomplished liability statute means there is no categorical match to the generic federal offense in this case either, end quote. Petitioner is not removable. What a case. Congratulations, Aaron Corthis and Allison Holmes of the Northwest Immigrant Rights Project. Just a bit more. The judges don't seem particularly happy with the result. Judges England and Bybee write in concurrence that, quote, our holding may be compelled by precedent, but it is not compelled by reason, end quote. They clearly don't like Valdivia Flores. Heck, Judge Rawlinson, the third judge on this case, dissented in Valdivia Flores itself. No one likes it at all, but kudos to the judges for recognizing themselves bound by precedent. Valdivia Flores remains good law and this case extends it to a removability offense defined under common law, aggravated felony theft, and not just statutorily defined removability provisions as was at issue in Valdivia Flores. I have to read Valdivia Flores again, but again. Doesn't this case make all Washington convictions broader than a removable offense? The concurrence states flat out that, quote, Valdivia Flores infects countless Washington criminal statutes, end quote, and that, as the U.S. government itself argued, 
and, quote, at least for aggravated felonies that require comparison of all elements of the state crime and an enumerated generic federal offense, no Washington state conviction can serve as an aggravated felony at all because of the accomplice liability statute, end quote. It's huge. Moving to Washington ASAP. See you later, San Diego. And that is Alfred B. Garland. Next is Lee v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on September 21st, 2021. Back to asylum. This case is about adverse credibility. Miss Lee is from China and entered the United States on a business visa in 2010. She remained longer than permitted, was placed in removal proceedings, and filed an application for asylum and related relief. She claimed that she was a Christian and member of an underground house church in China. She claimed in her application that she was arrested in March of 2010 when her house church meeting was raided by authorities, and that during interrogation she was slapped and kicked and accused of wanting to overthrow the Chinese government. Due to immigration court delays, the matter wasn't resolved until six years later. At that time, DHS alerted everyone that Miss Lee had failed to disclose an arrest in Washington State for prostitution in her asylum application. At the hearing, Miss Lee testified to a lot more things than what was in her application, including details regarding her husband being fired from his job in China and Miss Lee herself being imprisoned and not being given food. She also testified that she had misrepresented information in her visa application to initially come to the United States. The IJ made an adverse credibility finding, and the BIA affirmed, denying everything. And the Ninth Circuit upheld the BIA. It noted that inconsistencies in testimony no longer need to go to the heart of a claim following the Real ID Act, and that omissions in testimony and between evidence, while less probative of credibility, can still form a basis for an adverse credibility finding. Now first, relying on Iman v. Barr, discussed on episode 18 of the podcast, the Ninth Circuit did note that some of Miss Lee's omissions from her asylum application, such as the stuff about how she was not receiving food in jail, might not have been too probative of her credibility. Check out Iman because it's a really great decision for credibility and omissions in other cases. The Ninth Circuit also believed Miss Lee's somewhat inconsistent testimony regarding her husband's loss of his employment in China was, quote, too collateral or ancillary, end quote, to properly form an adverse credibility finding, particularly as the issue really regarded a letter that the husband himself submitted in court, which means that, quote, the omitted information concerned adverse consequences for a third party, end quote, and not necessarily Miss Lee's credibility herself. These are all things that Iman Vibar indicates might not support an adverse credibility finding. However, the Ninth Circuit took big issue with Miss Lee's misrepresentation in her visa application and in her asylum application itself. The Ninth Circuit didn't like how Miss Lee didn't disclose the prostitution arrest and noted that the IJ was not required to believe Miss Lee's explanation that she didn't disclose it because the criminal charge was dismissed. And, although Miss Lee's having provided false information in her visa application about her prior employment in China, quote, alone might not support an adverse credibility finding, end quote, it does in totality with the prostitution omission. This is particularly the case because Miss Lee did not say 
that she only lied in her visa application about her eligibility for a non-immigrant visa to come to the United States in order to flee persecution. If she had testified to that, the finding might be different. Ms. Lee therefore lost her case. But here's a quote to keep in your back pocket. As many of you know, non-citizens often get confused on cross-examination. And, as English isn't their first language and testifying in court is hard, sometimes they don't have the tightest testimony. Here, Ms. Lee testified in a manner that the IJ and the BIA believe showed that she was inconsistent regarding who, the prison guards or the prisoners themselves, was preventing her from eating while in jail. But the Ninth Circuit held that read in the proper context, while the quote, use of pronouns with ambiguous antecedents might have been misleading, that itself does not produce an inconsistency, end quote. Perhaps a logical statement, but it's always nice to have a quote like that in your brief if it applies. And that is Lee B. Garland. Finally, we have Qui V. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on September 23rd, 2021. This decision is a procedurally complicated one about motions to reopen. Ms. Kui is from China and overstayed her non-immigrant visa and applied for asylum in immigration court in 2014. But she was arrested in a different state during her proceedings right before the individual hearing, and her counsel moved to continue that hearing. But the immigration judge denied the motion, and neither Ms. Kui nor her attorney appeared for the merits hearing. So the IJ ordered Ms. Kui removed in absentia. A new attorney appealed the in absentia order of removal, in a move that, at least as described in this case, appears to have been a mistake, because under matter of Guzman Aguera, the BIA has long held that it is, quote, without authority to consider a direct appeal from an in absentia order of removal, end quote. According to the BIA in the Ninth Circuit, what you're supposed to do in this circumstance is file a motion to reopen with the immigration court. Three months later, and within 180 days, counsel did just that, filing a motion to reopen the in absentia order of removal with the immigration court. But according to the majority in this decision, the motion did not explain why Ms. Kui should be excused from missing her hearing. In any event, the immigration court rejected the motion entirely, believing that the BIA had jurisdiction over the entire case because the case had been appealed, and because current counsel, remember the second attorney, had not filed a motion to substitute as counsel before the immigration court. Eventually, the BIA returned the matter to the immigration court, but now the court refused to reopen proceedings on a subsequent motion because more than 180 days had passed since the removal order had been issued. While there are, of course, exceptions to the 180-day rule to file a motion to reopen, such as the non-citizen not receiving notice of their hearing, being in state custody, change country conditions, those kind of things, a motion to reopen like Ms. Quee's must be filed within 180 days and explain that exceptional circumstances prevented her from attending her court hearing that she missed. For all of these reasons, the court denied the motion to reopen. The BIA eventually affirmed, as did the Ninth Circuit here. The court first affirmed long-standing BIA precedent that an in absentia removal order can't be directly appealed to the BIA, but instead must be subject to some sort of motion to reopen for a non-citizen to possibly get appellate review. 
Then, the Ninth Circuit held that Miss Queen never timely filed a motion to reopen because her first immigration court motion to reopen, which, remember, was submitted within the 180-day period, was rejected by the immigration court. The Ninth Circuit held that the immigration court properly rejected that filing for at least one reason. Even though counsel submitted an EYR 28 appearance form with the motion, Miss Kui was previously represented in immigration court, so a motion to substitute as counsel was required as well. I mention this because the decision isn't really clear, and I'm not so sure either, whether the immigration court properly rejected the motion based on the pending improper BIA appeal. If, as everyone agrees here, an in absentia removal order can never be directly appealed, will an erroneous appeal divest the immigration court of jurisdiction over the motion to reopen that needs to be filed? The case doesn't really say, but I'm curious. And what's a second attorney to do in such situations? It seems like the Ninth Circuit majority would have new counsel withdraw the appeal from the BIA and immediately refile with a motion to substitute before the immigration court complicated stuff. The majority decision recognizes Ms. Quee's, quote, bureaucratic catch-22, end quote, but unlike Judge Pius in dissent, believes that, quote, to the extent Ms. Quee found herself in a catch-22, it was entirely of her and her lawyer's own making, end quote. Anyway, the Ninth Circuit then held that the BIA's return of the matter back to the IJ due to the improper appeal was only a return of the file and wasn't a legal remand. That means that the BIA's return of the case to the IJ did not restart the 180-day clock Ms. Kui had to file a motion to reopen. Plus, the motion to reopen that Ms. Kui did eventually file never explained what exceptional circumstances beyond Ms. Kui's control resulted in her missing her hearing, as the regulations require. The majority essentially calls Ms. Kui's counsel ineffective, but believes its review limited and the arguments insufficient for Ms. Kui to win the day. Judge Pai's in concurrence and dissent would hold that the BIA erred by rejecting the first motion because the immigration court had no legal basis to do so, and Judge Pai's believes that the IJ and the BIA's sua sponte analysis was tainted by an incorrect understanding of the law. Pretty strange case with a pretty unique procedural history. So let's end the show. And that is Queeby Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. 
I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.